Hey folks, this is Always Been Watching. This is our weekly discussion about the movies and TV shows that we've been watching. My name is Dan Barrett. I'm joined by the area diet sophisticated gentlemen that are joining me on the panel this week. We've got regular co-host, Chris Christopher Yates. Hi Dan, it's great to be here. Christopher is the inverted <laughs> Yeah, thing. I like that. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, it's the Chris Christopher, <laughs> like, you know, that's the hip name that all the cool kids are calling you. Excellent. Yeah, and Simon... Big Sim Foster. Big Sim Foster? Yeah. I've never been called that in my entire life. I thought when you said Chris Christopher Yates, he had, that was his middle name. Like it was two, <laughs> he was two Christophers. My middle name's Ralph. A lot, really? of people, a lot of people don't know that. Can I call you Ralphie from I here on? I really wish you wouldn't. Can I though? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it's good to be here. Okay, so the way this podcast works, because I'm sure we've got the same listeners we do each and every week. Having Except for audience. all the new ones we've got. But the thing is, every episode is always someone's first episode. Exactly. So you've got to explain the premise. Premise is this. We watch things, often TV, occasionally movies, because we're sophisticated screen consumers. I am. Yeah, well, we all are. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Just because... It's fine. We'll get, it. we'll get to that later. We'll get there. We're all sophisticated. We're all watching the screen stuff. And myself and Chris will be like, hey, Chris, what have you been watching? Or, hey, Dan, what have you been watching? We don't tell each other what we're going to talk about on the podcast. It's the process of discovery. It's like when you're at that terrible barbecue and there's that one person there that you actually like as opposed to the rest of the other jerks that are there. And you huddle up in the corner and the conversation immediately turns to what you've been watching lately. And they surprise you with like weird documentaries or TV shows you don't really know. That's what we try to capture here. On the, That's the magic we're looking for. That's right. So we usually do that. This week's a little bit different. So we've brought in Simon because I'm very keen to talk about the new Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We all know this on the panel. This isn't a big surprise. Yeah. Chris Yates, noted Quentin Tarantino hater. What? <laughs> not really a hater, just not an enthusiast. Exactly. We'll get to that in a little bit when we talk about Once Upon a Time. <laughs> oh, jeez. But, Chris Yates, you've got the wild card here. Myself and Simon have no idea what no, it is you're going to be talking whatsoever. about. Chris Yates, I'm going to ask the question we ask on the podcast to kick things off. What have you been watching? Well, Dan, I've been watching a brand new show, which is something that's a little unusual for me because usually I bring in stuff that's 20 to 15 to 10 years old. Um, I've been watching a brand new show on the Netflix called Woo Assassins. Oh, I've heard very good things about this. Yeah, no, I'm super excited about this. It's been out for about two weeks since we record this. I've been desperate to watch it, and I haven't. And, like, Chris, do you actually know what the deal is with this? Or well, did you stumble well, not really. So, it? you know my deal. I don't really read anything about yeah. anything that happens on television or movies <laughs> or much at all. I kind of just, just, just stick to the, um, you know, the comics. Uh, and by that, I mean the funny pages, which yeah, doesn't even exist anymore. Garfield, that's yeah, the guy. Yeah. I love Andy that Cap. guy. Yeah. Foot rut flats. Family circus. <laughs> family, family. Calvin thing. and Hobbes. Um, <laughs> but but what I, something I do do is, like many uh, people um, in today's day and age, I scroll through the Netflix things, and the first thing that comes up that looks mildly interesting, I put it on for 30 seconds, give it a bit of a chance, and then I'll turn it on or off. Okay, so the thing that you probably need to know, go, need to know going into this... Which is, I didn't. Which you didn't. But have you ever seen the film The Raid? No. Do you know what The Raid is? No. Okay, Simon, you know The Raid. I absolutely know The Raid. Yeah. It is a, uh, a thrilling, bloodthirsty action film. Um, Tour de Force. Tour de Force, it might be said. Uh, Indonesian, I believe. I think that's right. Um, in which a... I think he was a, a kind of like a SWAT officer or a police officer, has to make his way from the bottom of a building to the top of a building, um, fighting against some of the most bloodthirsty and, and horrific gangsters uh, in the city's history. And yeah, boy, 
it really counts for action plus. Yeah, and it's like a video game. It's like playing Double Dragon back in the day, where it's you like start bosses out with on the levels and stuff. No, it's not all the bosses. Well, I mean, they're like Boss, human bosses. Are bosses. Yeah. Yeah, Is there a donkey throwing barrels at you? Is that the same one? Because <laughs> that would have been good in the raid. That might be the director's cut. Probably. The, yeah, and I've only seen part of the raid too, so maybe it's in there. But it's like Double Dragon, where you start out like the crappy sort of guys that you're just fighting on the street. So on the ground level, it's like the easy guys, and level by level, it gets increasingly harder until you hit the big boss at the top level. It's a huge film and very gory and, and, and spectacular choreography the way it's done. I'm assuming that comes across in Wu Assassin. Absolutely. So obviously, Aiko Uwes, I think is how you pronounce his name, the Indonesian actor, is the star of Wu, uh, Wu Assassins. And He's, the star of The Raid. And the star of The Raid. Um, the show opens, and this is what sucked me in with this incredibly choreographed sort of six-minute fight scene. And I think he does the choreography as well six for minutes. it. He would almost have to. like, Yeah, the way that he's actually living, you know, the way he embodies what's going on is just unbelievable to watch. And I'm not a big martial arts fight kind of guy. I really like the um, Shaw Brothers stuff and there's definitely echoes of that in this, which is really cool. Um, now, we should say it's like a very specific type of martial arts. So I don't quite know exactly what it is. No, it's not something I was familiar with. Is like, it all contemporary setting? Is it all sort of in the modern yeah, time? Yeah, so I think it's set in San Francisco in wow. Chinatown. Um, and basically, he, basically, our protagonist is the son of the leader of the triads in, the, um, in I think it's San Francisco. It is. Um, confirmed. And, uh, confirmed. And, which, um, I'm sorry, which immediately brings to mind... Big Trouble in Little China, the great Kurt Russell film. Yeah. Ah, that's San Francisco. Well. Yeah. So I guess maybe the question I have to ask is, is James Hong in this? You, you, no. I, I, you don't? You, <laughs> as if I would know who that is. <laughs> Look, um, you actually know who James Hong is, but... Yeah, maybe I do. Keep going while I Google image him for you. And show him and go, ah, oh, that guy. Uh, yeah, so anyway, and um, he... Th- this is kind of revealed slowly over the first two episodes. I'm not really giving anything away because it's kind of obvious why he's there. He doesn't want to follow in the triad in the footsteps of his triad father and his father's kind of cool with that but he's also a bloodthirsty psychopathic killer um, and you know so they have a they have a strange relationship it would seem sure. um, you see some flashbacks where there's some quite early uh, you know where he's exposed to this stuff at a quite early age but all he wants to do is be a chef and he's a great chef and he works <laughs> for his um, he works for his uh, brother or sister's restaurant and is just trying to get through stuff when all of a sudden uh, he's a he is, is he, I don't even know how to really ex- explain it. It, it. it kind of happens very fast and it caught me off guard where he is uh, transported to a magical realm oh, where he go. is um, blessed with the power of 20 monks <gasps> and these are all magical monks with special powers and he then has to um, destroy, he's, he's then destined to destroy the um, five... Uh, leaders of various different triad gangs who are coming together to all converge and basically have a, a race war oh. uh, in the a, a, a gang war in the middle of the city. So oh, Netflix is there's nothing you can't do. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're not if you if you're not sold by that, you're not going to like it. Obviously, you guys are going to like it. Yeah. So I saw the trailer for it and I didn't know what it was before I clicked play. And I was watching. I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And by the end of it, I'm like, this is the dumbest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. I must see uh, exactly. Like, that was it too. I didn't. I did not think I was going to get through. But like as soon as like as soon as the supernatural stuff kicked in, I was like, oh. God, this is going to be a stretch. <laughs> but it just like it, it, the action just comes so fast, and it's so beautiful to look at. It just so it's it's quite funny in the way it's done, and the um, 
you know, the, the sort of juxtaposition of the triads and the um, black American gangs and how they're all kind of just in, in this, like, guarding territory and... Um, and just, the supernatural element has to be, like, very exciting as well. This so that cool. becomes really cool. So, yeah, basically, when he's in these um when he's in the combat situations so the first episode yeah starts with this six minute scene where he's just running through these levels of the building just taking out every dude that he sees jumping down staircases amazing all just you know all just fighting and putting knives through people's hands and stuff and then um when it's kind of uh, it's revealed you know midway through it's sort of revealed that that was a flash forward so we're seeing what the scene that happens at the end of the episode and then Mm -hmm. when you see it at the end of the episode it's interspersed with the um uh, the the you know the the people who are being attacked actually see him as the monk. They don't see him as the chef. So it's this oh. kind of cool, like weird you know things happening like that. This sounds a bit graphic novelish. Is it, is I, it based on anything we know? I, I don't, don't know. think so. I think it's an original. Yeah, wow, I, okay. I could have figured. I was looking up that myself, but I think it, yeah, no, I think it is an original idea. And it's just it's so obvious how it's going to pan out with him taking out the five different bad guys. It's just going to be so cool. So yeah, I'm two episodes <laughs> in, and I'm definitely down. I'm in it for the long haul. I like that you know where it's going and it's like the raid we knew where the film was going sure like after a while you just like key into what's going on and you want it to play out exactly like how you think it's going to play out because mm-hmm. that's kind of where the fun of it is you just want to see it actually unravel yeah, yeah. It, it's the anticipation of like oh my god there's going to be another one of these awesome fights any minute I can deal with this 10 minutes of dialogue and, or 2 minutes of dialogue <laughs> and a little bit of family drama that we're supposed to be interspersed with there what is the dialogue and drama like so obviously we're here for the ridiculousness of the supernatural and yeah. the crazy bonkers like fight scenes but does the rest of it just feel like a slog or is it actually... Not really. Like, it's pretty... There's not a lot to it, but it's pretty... Uh, it's all family-based, you know. So, it's obviously he's got this um, quite massive issue with his father um, being the leader of the triads. And then he's got um, his um, brother and sister kind of together and running this restaurant, I think is how that worked. So, and, um, you know, the brother is kind of into that triad lifestyle and he wants to be on there. You know, he's he's welcoming them and trying to create a restaurant and thing where they can come and so he can have a little bit of that excitement, I guess, in his life that the sister doesn't want to buy of it. Um, so it's this sort of very, very thin idea of a plot involving the family, which... Um, and then there is... A, and then there's uh, the other half of it, which is almost unnecessary, but I guess it's going to become more necessary is there's a few, um, you know, there's the cops. So there's a, there's a, uh, there's a cop that's going undercover into the sort of um, car stealing ring that um, the brother who's loosely tied up with the triads is involved in. And um, yeah, one, and, then, and then there's this absolutely kick-ass um, woman cop who's going to become, I think, the sort of maybe the the partner or the sidekick of the of the chef i would imagine you as sound fully out. invested it's fantastic stuff i mean you just can't, <laughs> you can't you, I, I can't possibly see how it's going to go wrong there's a chance i might get a bit bored with it but i mean really there's not much to get bored with there i think woo assassins woo assassins and that's streaming now on netflix that is now on netflix yeah highly recommended for people who like watching martial arts stuff and you know fantastic fights. The degree of choreography in fight scenes nowadays, um, which you know it's been made abundantly clear with the John Wick series on the big screen, that the the, the age old sort of um, uh, punch and kick and and choreography that's been used for years is out the window. This is a, a this is whole new sort of um, fighting style, deeply influenced by by the martial arts and by Eastern philosophy and culture that's made its way into Hollywood productions. And but it was kind of the raid that I think really kicked a lot of this off. It, it was yes, and when something new and fresh comes along, and we were discussing this before the show, how how 
someone like Steven Seagal came along with no acting talent and could barely speak but introduced this new style of fighting on screen and it was exciting enough to carry him through three or four movies. So, um, yeah, so when the, yeah. Raid, when the Raid came along... Because he was only ever in three or four movies. <laughs> and obviously he came in with no acting talent, but boy, did he live the industry as the oh, consummate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's a hero of mine. He's a great man. Great, great man. He's a terrible human being. The, um, <laughs> he, and so this fighting now is... As, and as you say, with the Raid was another game changer. Um, and, and, you know, John Wick once again currently. So Wu Assassin sounds like the next sort of logical step in this development of on-screen violence. And now the choreographers for the John Wick series are now being employed by a whole bunch of other films to bring that level of kinetic fighting to the thing. Kinetic yeah. fighting, I love it. And it's, yeah. you know, it's so relieving. It's so refreshing to watch some action scenes that aren't happening at such a pace and rate and CGI feel that you can't kind of keep track of what's going on, which is one of my biggest bugbears with modern big blockbuster action films. And obviously with the supernatural element, there's going to be a sense that there's some cute computer work going on, but it still feels a like little natural. Bit, it, feels, it feels heaps more like the old, yeah, the, the old um, martial arts yeah. style, you know, the ropes and things like that, sort of, yeah. that you get a sense. I'm sure they're probably not, well, they, maybe they are doing that. It, it certainly feels more like that stuff. That's practical physicality. Yeah, yeah. You totally. make such a valid point about the use of CGI in traditional action films. I don't know if you guys have discussed it on air. Forgive me, I never listen to what you talk about. <laughs> Hobbs and Shaw is in the cinemas at the moment, and I found it the most excruciating thing to get through because everything sort of defies gravity, defies physics, um, and is created on a laptop in some kid's basement, for all I know. It's a, it's just CGI throughout, which I just made it unwatchable. I yeah. can assure you that neither Chris nor myself will ever watch Hobbs versus <laughs> Hobbs and Shaw. I don't even know what to do. Although, in so many ways, you're the Hobbs to my Shaw. Um, I'll take that as a compliment. I don't even know what it means. <laughs> no, that's fine. It means one of you is Jason Statham and one of you is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I'm and definitely sitting here looking rock. at both of you, that's not happening. <laughs> you don't see him as a Statham type. Well, temperamentally oh. occasionally, but other... <laughs> <laughs> Let's end the segment by me showing Chris a picture of uh, James Hong. Oh yeah, he he hasn't been in it yet, but gee, I, hope, I really dream. hope he is. And that's obviously from his two best roles being both uh, Showdown in Little China and Wayne's World Two. <laughs> yes, Wayne's World Two, of course. Oh. <laughs> Most famously, you can't say James Hong without Blade Runner. He was, of course, in Blade Runner as well. Dude, he's in everything. He's in an episode of Seinfeld. He Probably is? one of the best episodes. Can't of Seinfeld write. As well. Oh yeah, yeah. can't write. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, okay, so now uh, I'll do it. What have you guys been watching? Chris, let me tell you what I've been watching. <laughs> you go. are going to love it. Yeah, boy. Okay, so we're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pl- Mr. Schwartz. Call me Martin. Put it there. That's your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> oh, the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Have you not seen bastards? Now, as I said earlier, we usually talk about TV on this program, but when there's a big movie around, and sometimes there's a few weeks where TV isn't really, like, that big, but when there's a Quentin Tarantino film, all the movie nerds, like, they sit up and pay attention. And part of the reason I haven't seen Woo Assassins yet is like so many other people who are excited about this movie, I've spent the last week and a half just watching Tarantino movies because you go through the filmography to get up to the new one. Chris, I'm bashing my head on the microphone <laughs> right now. I'm just doing it in a way that doesn't make a noise. Okay, so it's a new Tarantino film, so we've got to talk about it. We have to, Chris. It's legally binding okay, issue. Okay, right. Fair enough. Okay, here's the thing. And we're going to talk about spoilers. So if you haven't seen the film yet, okay, maybe just like put this aside and come back to it when you see it. 
surely if you're that excited about it, you've seen the film You've by probably now. seen it by now. And there's some yeah. big spoilers to talk about, so we'll tread carefully, but we're going to go there. Yeah. Best thing about the spoilers is means I don't ever have to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also, like, maybe you're going to find out that it's not quite the film you think it is, sure. and it might just be sure. something that'll get right. you over there. We'll yeah. see. And I will say, like, a lot of the surprises in the film are things I just kind of expected to see walking in. To a certain extent. I'm the same there. Yeah. I've seen it twice now. Um, so you probably knew the second time what you're going to see. Oh, I definitely knew the second time <laughs> around what I was in for. The whole second one was a spoiler for me. No, this is a film that um, he's made eight films. This is the ninth Tarantino film. Every one of his films is either pitched as an event or um, becomes an event. Um, this one set right in the midst of his... Um, what many believe is his mindset, this sort of uh, late 60s, 70s pop culture mindset that so many of his films reference. This is a deep dive into that culture and into that um, into that sort of uh, city of the time. Um, so I've, I've got a spill here. Can I Are you going to do the spill? spill? All right, do the spill. spill. Okay. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's the story of actor Rick Dalton. He's in Hollywood in 1969. He's on the verge of being a washed-up actor. He's got a driver who follows him around everywhere. He's a washed-up stuntman named Cliff Booth. Now, he's clinging on to the hope of working for a few, few more years in the industry, but the industry, by the stage, has really just chucked him out. Uh, meanwhile, Hollywood itself is shifting around them. The industry's hound, it's not only dealing with a cultural shift happening around in America generally, but it's also on the verge of the American new wave of cinema in the 70s. Mm. Hippies are everywhere, and just up the hill from where Rick Dalton lives is the hottest filmmaker in town, Roman Polanski, and his new bride and up-and-coming actor, Sharon Tate. This is a city where dreams are made. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The dreams are made. The dreams are shattered in many instances. Um, this is a real uh, big movie in every sense of the word. I was lucky enough to have seen it in, in 35mm at the Australian premiere down at the Astor Theatre in, in Melbourne. It's a gorgeous-looking film shot and by Robert Richardson. Still being played in 35mm at the Astor, I'm sure. It is, yes. In and Sydney, at, the Rand- at the Randwick Ritz, I think it yeah, is. Yeah, in Sydney you've got two locations. So you've got the Ritz and also the Cremorne, Hayden Cremorne Orpheum. Yep, yep, yep. And it's definitely worth seeing with lots of beautiful deep shadows and deep colours with, with the film um, projection. So certainly give that a go. Um, Tarantino demanded that this film be shot on 35mm um, and it looks gorgeous. Um, the three primary characters in the film, Rick Dalton played by Leonardo DiCaprio, the wonderful Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth and uh, just a luminous um, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate um, bring to life this extraordinary story that I just found surprisingly moving for a, a Quentin Tarantino film. I grew up um, looking back on the year, on the decade that I was born in, I was born in 67, so when I was sort of old enough to look back and look at the major events of, of that decade, I had the Beatles, I had Vietnam, I had Charles Manson were sort of the, the key iconic names that, that popped out at me. And the, as soon as I learned about the fate of Sharon Tate, it just broke my heart and still to this day, you know, makes me feel tense and nauseous inside. Um, when it was announced that Tarantino was making Once Upon a Time in, America, in, in Hollywood, I apologise, um, and that he was going to take on the, the Manson murders, I shuddered a bit. I didn't need to see Tarantino's take on violence on what is already a horrifically violent period. I think everyone was nervous about it. Everyone was, yeah. Because I've seen Tarantino films before. Like, I knew that he wasn't quite going to do a straight take on that. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, and thankfully he hasn't. He hasn't. He hasn't yeah. at all. Um, what he has done, and it's all there in the title, is created a, a new fairy tale version of um, what happened to America at that point in time instead of descending into a, a horrific sort of split culture um, in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate and, and the 
Manson murders, um, he has turned it on its head and, and painted a portrait in, that, in the final frames of the film, which give America this great sense of hope and this great sense of new direction. Um, and I just found those, those final moments of the film so moving. And again, watching it for a second time, um, all of Margot Robbie's performances, Sharon Tate, the incredible scene where she's watching her own movie on the big screen um, and reacting along with the audience to it, just brought tears to my eyes. It's a, it's a beautiful performance in a surprisingly emotional film. Yeah. And also, like, all of the characters are really being played as types against each other as well. So there's a lot of criticism about Margot Robbie not really having the, you know, number of lines as everyone else in the film. But her character as well isn't necessarily the focus of the film, but really she's an idea that the sort of washed-up actors are working against. She's the successful up-and-coming actress of whom is just discovering that she's about to become a big deal. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the film is actually her just going to the movies and watching herself on a big screen. And while she's there watching herself on the big screen, you're seeing the Brad Pitt character, who's the stuntman, who's revisited an old um, set they used to work on quite regularly. It's an old Western ranch. Yeah, which is a real ranch. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Those scenes depicted in the film is the ranch and and, um, where the Manson commune and his followers all sort of gathered around. The character played by... Um, Bruce Dern in the film, George Spahn, who was to be played by Burt Reynolds before his passing, Mm. um, was a real person. Uh, So that element of the story, while the Brad Pitt character and the the, um, Leonardo DiCaprio character aren't true true, um, um, characters, uh, the Spahn Ranch is, is certainly a real part of the Manson mythology. Yeah, so Brad Pitt's out there just dealing with like all the Manson business. He's been taken there by one of the girls that were part of the cult. Mm-hmm. And so he suddenly just found himself in this horrible situation. And it is tense and just like great disturbingly creepy in the sun-drenched like Los Angeles sun of an old Western set. Yeah, look, it's... it's sorry, Dan, I didn't mean to jump yeah. in then, but it's a... It, it, the film, it's, I wouldn't say it's plotless, but this is more um, an, an, an experiential film. It's a, it's a movie where you um, are watching things happen to people and experiencing Los Angeles in 1969, just as these characters are experiencing it. And it's, it, it sort of creates this mood and this vibe and this counterculture sort of feeling that um, is really evocative and really sort of um, it draws you into what these people are going through. DiCaprio scenes, which largely take place on a, a, a TV set. Yeah, which it's happening at the exact same time as Brad Pitt on this Hollywood uh, like Western set. Exactly right. He's shooting a, a, a TV Western where his whole career is being redefined as, as being, you know, the leading man roles are being taken away from him and he's being given the, the sort of guest parts, the baddie bit parts. Like on the sp- villain of the week. Exactly, on shows like FBI and Mannix. And they, these are all referenced wonderfully in the film. Um, and he takes it upon himself to give the performance of a life in this baddie role opposite the late Luke Perry, who has a terrific sort of cameo in the film, um, and a wonderful young actress called, I think it's Julia Butters, who yeah, plays Yeah, she's incredible. This, she's oh, like about like maybe 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. She's a, a very seasoned Tinseltown eight-year-old who, um, who has this great, some of Tarantino's best dialogue is in this wonderful scene between her and DiCaprio. So it's a, it's a film that is sort of multi-tiered in that it's DiCaprio, Pitt, Margot Robbie's story, yet they all come together in a... In a this really sort of beautiful version of an America that might have been. What's really interesting is that, you know, this is a, you know, this was a very big turning point, these Manson murders. I, I watched this week, I watched the um, a documentary on the Source family, who were another cult that were operating at the same time, and a much more, um, well, it, it's easy to look back and say a much more peaceful cult now, but they were still very weird, and the, they were still a leader who was... Um, uh, very much um, there for the sort of sexual for his own sexual gratification on a mm. lot of levels. Where were they? 
uh, in California as okay. well. So they yeah. were kind of they were aware of each other and operating in a similar way. Um, the sort of traditional ideas that you think of when you think of a cult, like the white robes mm-hmm. and the, um, hippie music and all that kind of stuff, yep. is very much um, based on the Source family. But when um, you know that was all destroyed by the by the Manson murders because it just became impossible for them to sort of live in their sort of weird idea of a peaceful lifestyle sure. beyond that, and they sort of twisted more and they, and they turned more into kind of like the music industry, which of course you know the music industry was heavily involved in all that stuff as well there was lots of crossovers with Manson and um you know not only just quoting the Beatles and stuff but also he was um you know he was involved with the Beach Boys he was the the whole thing is basically Manson was trying to become a rock star and you know his inevitable murders were because he was rejected by the music industry Mm. so it's it's such a incredibly massive epic time for the kind of the story of America and the story of entertainment in America yep that uh, even this Tarantino um, you know skeptic is probably interested to see for that reason I think you'd actually really enjoy this film and I love Leonardo who doesn't like Leonardo DiCaprio you have to be crazy although it's kind of Brad Pitt's film well it really is and I think I mentioned to you the other day that that I think Pitt's headed towards a supporting actor Oscar for his part in this film. And you made the point that, well, it's sort of, sort of a shared role. He's as much a lead as, as DiCaprio yeah. is, even though he spends the film in DiCaprio's shadow as his, as his gopher. Yeah, they'll put him in a supporting category. Though. I think they will. I think yeah. they will. And, and DiCaprio is, is at a point in his career where he doesn't need all the, the um, accolades of a, you know, the Hollywood heartthrob kind of appearance. And he comes on very dark and very dirty. He's, he's effectively a functioning alcoholic in this film. When he first turns up on the set of the Western pilot, he's um, terribly hungover after knocking off eight whiskey sours the night before <laughs> while trying to learn his lines. Um, he ultimately uses that in this incredible scene where he, uh, he delivers the performance of a lifetime. Um, but it's a movie that, uh, yeah, looks at a really sort of dark side of Hollywood um, but ultimately does it in a really hopeful way. Yeah. Now, we're probably going to verge a bit more into spoiler territory here, so if you're right. really concerned about things, like, maybe back off. But what I knew about the film going into it is, because I've seen Inglorious Bastards before, which had a very specific alternate reality that takes place at the end of that film, mm-hmm. where you see Hitler not die by suicide in a bunker, but rather he's brutally murdered to death by a woman, like a survivor of, you know, Nazi Germany in a way. Yep. Uh, and he gets burned to death in a cinema. Uh, great scene wonderful yeah. scene yeah I've never cheered louder in a theatre <laughs> <laughs> but like I knew going into that that Tarantino is not afraid to play around with history I thought about the title of the film yep. I thought about the fact that I couldn't imagine Quentin Tarantino would want to go through with seeing Sharon's hate be brutally murdered and who would want to watch that I exactly. mean that sort of weighs into it like, as well it'd just be horrific to watch that Yeah. so I knew going into it we were not going to see that and he would skew history and she would be alive by the end of the movie sure and that's exactly what we get. So you get some brutal violence, but instead of being subjected to this beautiful actress who's at the top of the hill, who's just starting her career, and she's such a bright light through the entire film, uh, instead it takes place at the bottom of the hill, which is where Cliff is uh, hanging out with... Um, Brandy the Pitbull. Randy the pit, his Pitbull. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> but and also at Dolson's place. Yes. Yeah, so Cliff, uh, Cliff who's the Brad Pitt character... Um, he first confronts the Manson people who take a bit of a turn into their house instead of going up the hill. And so they realise they've actually met previously. Brad Pitt is completely stoned out of his mind on acid at the time. <laughs> and you get maybe the most violent fight scene I've ever seen outside of the raid and Wu Assassins. Yeah. And it is just a wow. brutal, violent, bloody scene with Cliff really going to town on these three hippies. What it does is that it gives America's it gives America its revenge on the Mansons. Um, Absolutely, in, a, in, a, in exactly the kind of fashion that Manson unleashed on on 
Tate and Jay Sebring and the Folgers in the in the house in real life. Um, in Brad Pitt's hands, it's uh, even more shocking because for most of the film, he's absolutely charming and, and laconic, but um, he does have in his past uh, what may or may not be a... Uh, the murder of his wife that he may or may not have been cleared of. Um, you raise an interesting point. We'll talk about that in a moment. We'll get to that in a moment. He also has a scene which has caused some sort of controversy around the traps uh, with Bruce Lee, played by Mike Moe, um, that some people are saying is dishonourable to the memory of, of Bruce yeah. Lee. And I, had... I, I want to come back to that as well. I want to talk about okay. controversies sure. in a sec. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so he ends up dispatching with the Manson um, you know, followers. In a shocking way. In an extremely shocking way. But what I think sort of marvellous about this is like the end of the film is there's an interesting piece which I saw on the ABC website written by Cam Williams. Do you know Cam? I know Cam, yes. Yeah, Cam, uh, he's a good guy. I like Cam. Uh, but he's written this interesting piece which is about how the entire film is about Quentin Tarantino saying goodbye to movies because this is his ninth film. He's supposed to be making ten films mm-hmm. and being done with it. And it's him saying goodbye to Hollywood. I don't think that's entirely what the film's about. I think if you look at the last few minutes of this movie, because most of the film's been kind of about that thematically, but the last couple of moments of the film have uh, Brad Pitt dispatching of the Manson guys, but there's still one of them left by the end of the scene. And at that point, you see the Leonardo DiCaprio character who's been outside by the pool for the entire time this violence has been happening. And he's seen like one of the Manson people who's been set on fire, who's run outside to jump in a pool to you know shed themselves of the fire. Mm-hmm. And he looks at it and then runs inside and grabs the tool from his own film career. So there's a clip in the film of him in a terrible sort of schlocky Z-grade film where he's there with a flamethrower and he's burning Nazis. Yep. Uh, so he ends up grabbing the flamethrower, which he'd taken away from the set, and ends up setting a light to this hippie girl in the pool, mm-hmm. burns her to death. Straight after he does that, he says, like, deals with everything. The police have turned up and says goodbye to Cliff, who goes in an ambulance away. And then suddenly Sharon Tate and everyone sort of descends from, you know, the hills and comes down and offers him the chance to go up to Roman Polanski's house. And he's been desperate to go up there for the entire film. Mm. And in a way, it's kind of about the idea that he's used a tool that came from his terrible movie career behind him. And through the use of that tool, it's now given him the pathway. Literally, the gates have opened up to a new era in his career. Yeah. And I think this is really Tarantino, not saying goodbye to film, but really what I think the entire movie of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's about, which is that they've created the dream factory of Hollywood. And even though one phase of Hollywood's coming to an end, another one's opening up. And it's about him transferring to that next phase. So I think it's about Tarantino looking at the fact that he's got this nine film you know, history behind him and it's looking forward now going, what is this final film? What is the next phase for me? I think that's, I think that's a very perceptive. I think, um, the character of, of, uh, Rick Dalton, DiCaprio is the sort of character that Tarantino, um, has relaunched career wise through most of his films. Um, John Travolta, of course, with Pulp Fiction, but you consider the works of, of Robert Foster and David Carradine in the Kill Bill films, uh, Michael Parks as well. So Tarantino takes these faded stars and, and re energizes their career. And I think that's how he sees Dalton's career going in the wake of um, what he does at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The other important sort of part in that ending is that Sharon Tate embraces Rick Dalton she's the new Hollywood with her still living and and about to have this beautiful baby Um, all of a sudden Hollywood isn't ripped apart from her um, positivity and sort of ethereal qualities and just loveliness so she becomes a part of the future Hollywood I think it's a very sort of as I said a very hopeful film about where movie making was going to go at that point in time and, and shifting 
Hollywood's destiny and to a certain extent America's destiny off on a, on a far more positive path. Ironically, making movies that are probably not the films that actually inspired Quentin Tarantino. Like, you think back to all the 70s films that, That's like, right. That's surely was, was the inspiration get, for him. You know, yeah. yeah, like, you're talking about a world where Taxi Driver doesn't exist. Exactly. Like, that's that, exactly and that's a great a, point. And that's a world where Tarantino movies surely don't exist, yeah. if, if not to yeah. be inspired by them. What do you think is next for Tarantino, then? What is, is there any kind of idea... Is there any information about that, for yeah. starters? Well, the buzz is um, twofold. Uh, there's a great deal of buzz that he's going to do the next Star Trek film. Oh, yes, right. So will that really be his 10th last film? It's Well, it's it listed in IMDb as the untitled Star Trek project, so maybe. Yeah. there is, And he's uh, still actively talking about it. It's not yeah. like he's dismissing it entirely. No, exactly. Um, he The only sort of um, genre that he hasn't taken on uh, is horror, and there is a lot of buzz about that he'll do a full-on horror movie, which I think would be really shocking to watch because uh, he knows how to handle carnage and, and all those sort of things. So maybe that. Would there be a, is is there any idea or is there any speculation that we could actually see a return to sort of a more you know it's been a long time since Reservoir Dogs and all those kind of films broke through the very low budget, very well, high concept, but you know compelling sort of filmmaking. We're starting to see a little bit of that pop up now that you know blockbuster films are sort of taking are in the cinemas and stuff but because we've got Netflix and we've got these other things we're seeing some sort of low and mid-budget films coming back through well this is what I'm hoping so my favourite film of his is Jackie Brown Love which Jackie is like Brown. the most sort of earthy like grounded film that I think he's made and it's been a while since he's made that and this film definitely has like a lot of connections back to that film just in terms of some of the ideas that it's working in and some of the attitudes towards characters and it, like Jackie Brown it's kind of a bit of a mood piece to a certain degree yeah. as well uh, like you've kind of got that and I wish he'd go back to something that's just incredibly personal but I don't think he is I think he's going to go a horror film <laughs> I'd love to see a horror film from could Star Trek could Star Trek be a horror film uh, maybe it is like you know it's interesting you say Jackie Brown is your favourite and I know we're, we're getting time wise but I, I I love Jackie Brown obviously I love Pulp Fiction as well um Having said that, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the film I'm going to go back to more and more and watch again. I find it his warmest film. Maybe that's where I am now as a person, like as an, yeah. a, an older person, and maybe I just like this sort of very warm um, character piece. Uh, I think the dialogue between DiCaprio and Pitt is as good as Tarantino's done since Jules and Vincent in Pulp Fiction. Um, and the the Margot Robbie character just, just breaks my heart all the way through. So I... I, I like I said, I've already seen this twice, um, which is more than I've seen Django Unchained or um, the hate, what, Hateful Eight. So, mm. uh, yeah, I, I don't know if this is his best film, the best made film, but it's certainly the one that I've engaged with more than any of his works. Yeah, it's definitely my second or third favourite of his. Yep. Yeah, mm. it's outstanding. I just want to briefly talk about some of the controversies in this. So you touched upon it with Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. Do you want to explain that scene? Um, there is a scene in which uh, Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, gets a job on a movie set despite it's, the... It's an actually on the set of Green Hornet. On the set of Green Hornet, yes, which it is. Which is the TV show that Bruce it Lee was very working true, on. very true, yes. Um, which uh, Kurt Russell is the stunt boss, the stunt coordinator, gives him against his better judgment. He gets into, a, at first, a bit of a... Um, uh, verbal stoush with Bruce Lee, uh, which then becomes a physical stoush with Bruce Lee. Um, and Bruce Lee's daughter has come out and said that this scene, which sort of paints Bruce Lee as a, a fairly mystical oriental type, um, is not in his her father's best memory. Now, how do you feel about this scene? And you've seen it twice now. Um, Does Bruce Lee look like a dick? <sighs> he comes across a little bit like a dick. He yeah. does come across a bit like a dick, the way he speaks, how how sort of... 
based in fact that is I don't know um, I've spoken to people who who don't like the scene for that very reason in that it makes of him kind of a side note comedy character um, when obviously his legacy represents much more than that um, I don't have a problem with the scene because I think it speaks to Cliff's issues and that whole sequence is a um, recollection of Pitts while he's on the roof fixing the antenna. This is exactly it. So I think that while they play the Sharon Tate character as a real person who's experiencing stuff, mm-hmm. we're seeing the Bruce Lee character who's the other icon that you yep. see in the show. So you've got two icons in a film. Okay, One of them actually you're seeing in real time. The other one is a memory yep. that he's had. And he's seeing it through the viewpoint of someone of whom lost his job and lost his entire career, more or less as a result of this scene. Hmm. So I think he's seeing Bruce Lee as being the reason why he's lost his job. Because in that scene, he very much exits into this fight. Yep. Okay, so first of all, I think his memory of him is, you know, he was being a dick on set. You know, and then I suddenly sort of, you know, found myself within this. And I think because he's playing around with the iconic sort of idea of who Bruce Lee is sort of thinking through that as well, he's playing around with the idea of the sort of, aww, sort of sounds that yeah. he's making during the fight scene as well. So it's just really amped up. So it's become the characterization of Bruce Lee, uh, as a per- well, the caricature of Bruce Lee, rather than the actual man himself. Yeah, and, and I think that's... And, and, and people you can are- see that in it as well. Like, when they're fighting, like, he throws Bruce Lee against this car, and there's a massive dent, which is a comically huge dents in the side of this car because it's the memory. Sure, and I, and, and that's a completely valid point. I also think it's a valid point. Um, why would you use someone like Bruce Lee to tell that point? Why would you mess with the, the his legacy and his history as well? So I, I can absolutely see both sides of the argument. And I also think because... And I we'll know... sit on the fence accordingly. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, I know that Tarantino is a huge Bruce Lee fan well, as well. Well, of course, yeah. So yeah. I can't see that he's really going to want to besmirch his memory. No, absolutely. But the beginning of that scene, and correct me if I'm wrong because I've seen it just the once and it was kind of flying by, it's got Bruce Lee more or less holding court with a whole bunch of teamsters standing around. Yep. And he's giving a speech about how he's not actually able to perform to his best on screen because the cameras can't keep up with how proficient he is. And There's just... a little bit of that. The thing that Brad Pitt react, react against, reacts against excuse me, is um, he, uh, Bruce Lee makes a comment about Sonny Liston and Cassius Clay and how he would um, they wouldn't be able to catch him and he could kill them both in a fight, but yeah. his, his hands are lethal weapons and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's what irks Brad Pitt's character into the fight. Yeah, but I mean, part of the legend, as far as I know, Bruce Lee is really... Because uh, I'm a huge fan of the old Batman TV show, mm. and Green Hornet is related to the Batman TV sure. show. So I know a lot of Bruce Lee through the prism of Green Hornet, <laughs> which is a very unusual way to know Bruce Lee. Mm. I appreciate not many people sort of have it that way. So for me, part of the myth of Bruce Lee is knowing that they had problems on the set of that show, where all the action was a lot like the old Batman TV show, with like people running around and you know just like pushing each other over rather than actual choreographed, like real violent fight scenes, mm. which is obviously what Bruce Lee could do. Uh, so he was restricted from being able to do that. And so I know Bruce Lee is someone of whom, as he's telling in that story, is someone of whom they couldn't capture the real Bruce Lee because he's, you know, just too good for cameras in 1966. And with all due respect, there is a scene later in the film when um, Sharon Tate, Margot Robbie, is watching herself on the screen in The Wrecking Crew, the film she made with Dean Martin. Um, she was trained by Bruce Lee in fight scenes. And mm. there's a very warm, very lovely scene between Sharon Tate and Bruce Lee as they, they train that. So he's... I think that almost negates Brad Pitt's version or Cliff's version of Bruce Lee in flashback when he's, when they show what a, a warm, caring, lovely martial arts trainer for Sharon that Bruce Lee was. Yeah. Now, the theory that I threw at Simon a couple of days ago when I saw you, and I just want to run through it on the microphone a bit, because you've seen go. it a second time, yep. so I think you've maybe got some more insight. So when I was watching the film, uh, there's a storyline happening in it where the 
Cliff's character, the Bruce uh, Brad Pitt character, mm-hmm. he has supposedly killed his wife at some stage. And you do see as part of a flashback within that flashback to the Bruce Lee sequence, mm-hmm. where they show the sequence where the wife supposedly died. They're out on a boat together. He's got a harpoon in his hand. It's quite comical. And she's uh, being a little bit sort of narky at him. And then you just sort of see him like staring at her. And then it cuts away. The implication being that's when he's fired the harpoon and possibly murdered her. Mm. Uh, because he's possibly murdered his wife, uh, he's been blacklisted by the industry, and so people don't really want to work with him because he's a bit of a weird, creepy guy just on set because of this rumour. Mm-hmm. Now, when I saw this, the theory I had, because through the rest of the film, he doesn't really have a sexuality. Okay, And my theory was that he's actually a gay man of whom the story's built up around him supposedly killing his wife. And I think he's willing to lean into that story because he's allowed to sort of hide who he really is through that story. Yes, And so you've seen the film a second time. Does that story hold weight? When I saw the film the second time after I had that discussion uh, with you. Sorry, I should say there's a second scene where one of the Manson girls is sort of throwing herself at him. Mm-hmm. They're driving along in a car and she's talking about going down on him. And he sort of keeps on pushing her away and not really to the idea of I'm flattered, you know, that's fine. He sort of has this weird barrier up where he doesn't really sort of talk about his own interest here, whether it exists or not. Yep. And that's really what sort of got me down this pathway. The film opens, to be blunt, the very first piece of dialogue that Brad Pitt has in the film Mm. um, is during an interview sequence for television um, and he says, uh, do I carry his load? Yeah, you could say I carry his load. So instantly I was perhaps piqued a bit by your comment. Um, (laughs) Is peak the word you want? Maybe. And (laughs) so I started to watch this film for signs that either just the Brad Pitt character was, was gay or that they were a gay couple together. And... I started to notice scenes, um, specifically the scene in the restaurant car park where uh, Brad, uh, where um, Leonardo DiCaprio is crying after Al Pacino has just told him that he doesn't really have a career anymore. He collapses into <laughs> Brad's he collapses, in, collapses into Brad's chest, and instead of holding him and comforting him, Brad Pitt sort of puts one arm around his shoulder, but then sort of pushes him away a bit and looks around the car park. Oh, really? So he doesn't want that sort of intimacy in public no matter what. Yeah. Um, Which means could read either way. Which you could absolutely read either way. But I'm now watching my second viewing of the film through your comment and from your perspective. Um, And, you know, there are scenes throughout the film where their relationship is somewhat ill-defined or from the perspective of a gay couple quite well-defined. So I don't discount your reading of of many of those moments. See, I didn't read the DiCaprio character as being gay and that it was a couple. Uh It really just sort of struck me as a guy of whom, like, he's a stuntman, so he's supposed to be, like, this real masculine guy. Sure. But it sort of seemed like he had the secret that he's kind of hiding from the world and was just detached from everyone as a result of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There were several other scenes. The scene where... um, uh, Is it where he's shirtless and just really ripped standing on the rooftop? Well, he's got a great body, but there's also some great makeup work in that. His body is scarred, and and he he bears the sort of scars of his of his career. So it's great to watch that. Um, Chris, you'd love it. You would love that. Awesome. <laughs> he, looks, he looks like you without your shirt off. And um, <laughs> it's <laughs> so. Look, I I think this is a multi layered film which thematically looks at a whole lot of different things that you can really dig deep into. And I think that's why, in many regards, it's maybe um, uh, Tarantino's smartest film as well. Yeah. Anyway, so I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. Me too. Yeah. Chris, go and see it. I might watch it one day. Yeah. I'm going on Saturday morning. You can come <laughs> along with me. Sorry, I'm very busy. I know you like going to the movies because you enjoy seeing still for a long period of time. <laughs> this true. is only, what, three and a bit hours long? Yeah. Duh. What is it? 150 minutes? I think something like okay, that. Okay, so yeah. not even three hours. No, not quite three hours. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's mm. quite short these days. Really. Yeah, pretty much. All right, I'm, I'm there. There we go. We've sold him. <laughs> He's not coming. <laughs> anyway, let's bring this to an end. Uh, this has been Always Be Watching. Uh, Chris Yates, you're not really on social media. No, hate no. it. Okay, fine. Uh, Simon Foster, where can people find you? You can go to my website, ScreenSpace, that's screen hyphen space, um, or at ScreenSpace on Facebook. You can find me and my writings there. But there's probably another website you want to send people to. Yeah, look, uh, a few weeks from this point of recording, I launched the uh, second of my sci-fi film festivals here in Sydney, Australia, in at the event <laughs> cinema George Street. Uh, we've got three days from September 6th through to 8th of some of the best international um, science fiction cinema you'll see we're launching the festival with Necrotronic, the uh, follow-up to Wormwood for the Roach Turner Brothers. So do get along to that. Go to the Event Cinema's website. Just um, Google, I think, Sci-Fi Event Cinema, something like that, and it'll all come up. And there's plenty of tickets left, but they're selling fast. Now, just as a bit of a support of the Sci-Fi Festival, uh, last year was the first year that Simon was the curator of it. That's right. It's the sixth year, and I've been I've been program director for two years. Yeah, so I got along to the very first, like the opening, it was actually technically a media screening of the film called Star. It was called Star, yes. Which the entire film is literally just um, edited scenes from movies where they're just showing space. There's no like, wow. there's no spaceships or anything going through it. It's just shots of space, and it's just shot after shot after shot. It's from the dawn of cinema through till I think it was about four months before the cut that we got. And the director of the film is adding um, space scapes and starscapes with every film that comes up since then. So it's an ongoing work for him. Yeah, and fantastic. I, I went to see it out of politeness and courtesy to Simon, <laughs> but like I knew what it was going to be, and I'm like, I am not going to dig this at all. But 20 minutes in, I was like, this is just the most magnificent thing I've seen in my life. And then the other film from the festival from last year that I've seen is the thing I was talking about on the show like two weeks ago, which is that weird Anthony Edwards film called Midnight Mile. Oh, Miracle, yeah. Mile. Uh, Miracle Mile. Miracle Mile. Yeah. yeah, which is a complete bonkers film that I wish I'd seen on a big screen at the festival. Yeah, it's been, I've been a fan of that film since the mid-90s. I sold that on VHS when I was working for one of the video companies and um, nobody knew about it. And I think I sold like 20 copies all over Australia. <laughs> so, um, I've been pushing it ever since. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I've been pushing it ever since. I was thrilled to get it as the, la- as the closing night film the closing night film this year is called 52577 it's a passion project for a young director he actually finished shooting it in uh, 2004 but hasn't been able to distribute it because of financier problems um, 52577 is the day that Star Wars was released and That's this is I was his just thinking. yeah this is his true story about how that movie changed his life is this oh a film God. they were talking a lot about on the Ain't It Cool News forums back in the day absolutely they would yeah. have it finally got a release I think the Alamo Drafthouse played it for a couple of nights and the director is shipping it all over America getting you know people to come to town hall screenings of it um, this is this is actually the southern hemisphere premiere of the film he was telling me it hasn't screened anywhere in the southern hemisphere um, it's certainly the Australian premiere obviously and uh, his name's Patrick Reed Johnson hopefully he's coming out for the film Fantastic. that's incredible that's awesome but yeah if you're in Sydney get like check out the film festival because these are films that you're probably not really going to see most other places the no. films that you may not really even think to check out but based on a couple I've seen like I'm definitely you know, I'm very supportive of this. Yeah, thank you, mate. I really yeah. appreciate that. I get put in charge of this um, this festival for a few days a year, and that's, it, those three days come down to sort of the last six months of me watching movies from all over the world. We've got two German features in there, the world premiere of a German feature. Um, we've got this terrific little French um, sort of family film. We've got a Croatian film called My Grandpa is an Alien, which screens on Sunday at 10.30. So, yeah, September 6th through to 8. I'd love to see you all there. Awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. 
Anyway, this has been always been... Sorry, you can find me at Dan Bar- <laughs> uh, at the Dan Barrett on all the social <laughs> medias. Check out the website, alwaysbewatching.com. If you like the podcast, leave a review. Helps other people find the show. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you very much to Chris and for our guest, Simon Foster. Simon, can you stick around for next week? Um, I'll have to check my diary. Yes, I think I can. Okay, we're recording it right now, so oh, it's all going to be fine. definitely stay around. <laughs> Folks, this has been Always Be Watching. We'll talk to you next week. See ya.